This episode originally aired as a part of my other podcast, Project Shadow. Over there, I have been doing world-building content for a while, and I'm currently moving it all over to this new podcast. New episodes will be appearing soon. I am currently making all of my old content, including Worldbuilding 101 and Worldbuilding 201, available on this podcast as Season 1 and Season 2 of Mythweaving. I hope you enjoy, and don't forget to have the fun. So you want to make a mythology, and you're looking for a place to start? Uh, first of all, I would say you may want to check out the Worldbuilding 101 playlist for more information about that, but while we're at it, let's just dig right in. Because mythology making is a bit easier than you think it is, as long as you do it in the right order. Welcome to Worldbuilding 201. Today we're going to be talking about creating your mythology on this episode of Project Shadow. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name is Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and today we're continuing our world building 201 and discussing how to build mythology. Now, I think that there are two important things that we need to say right out the gate when dealing with mythology and world building and mythology that actually makes it into your stories. One, it's important to remember the three main definitions of mythology. One, a myth is always a metaphor. Always a metaphor. It meant something to the original people who shared it and who utilized it in their lives. Now, you can play around with that a lot, and it may be something that we don't understand today, but it will have to have meant something to the people that held that story dear. Mythology is more than just the stories of the gods, and it's more than just the sacred texts. Mythology is foundational for culture. It should connect the people who are telling it and who are listening to it, those who are participating in it with the four primary functions of mythology. It should connect them to the cosmos, it should connect them to their lives, to the stages of their lives, and it should give them some sense of how they should behave in the moral order. When you are constructing your mythology, you should bear that in mind. Now, as I said previously, it could be hard to understand exactly how those relate to one another when you're looking at a myth. I know when you're looking at Zeus and his myriad escapades, shall we say, it can be hard to see what people got out of it. But when you consider that this, these were stories that were told during a day and age where kings just did stuff like that, you could see how those stories were kind of meant to reinforce the social order that the king will just take whatever he wants and you kind of have to just deal with the ramifications afterwards. It's not a pretty moral to the story, but it's definitely a moral of the story that you could see why people are telling those stories. 
And number three, mythology, and this is kind of a common one, is either seen by some as either a lie or other people's religion. No, <laughs> just throw that one out. Just throw that out. Throw that one right out the window. Your mythos has to, has to bear some meaningful connection and correlation to the characters in the story, or they would not tell it. For goodness sakes, even the Cthulhu mythos, as messed up and deranged as it is, is meaningful to the various groups and peoples that are involved in that setting, because it tells you the do's and don'ts that, you know, they're not going to listen to because it's a horror story, but it at least establishes the players and who you should and shouldn't deal with, and gives you some hint at what terrible things they will eventually do to you if you do mess with them. It, it has to be practical. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people understand about mythology is its practicality. Because we think about them as strange stories, as larger-than-life stories, as stories about breaks in reality. When, in fact, a true mythology is always attempting to bring a person in line to reality as they experience it. What I mean when I say an experienced practical mythology, that doesn't mean the very simplified, well, they just wondered where lightning came from and so they made up Zeus. No, it actually means a lot more than that. That is a very modernist way of looking at mythology and something that if you are going to craft mythology, you're going to have to shake out of your noggin. Mythology was not intended to be proto-science, nor was it intended to be treated as proto-science. The stories that were told were there to align people with their experienced reality. Zeus is capricious because He's the god of the air, and the air is capricious. It gives, and it can be kind, and it can be hot and sweltering. It can be cold and jarring. It can bring about sudden violent storms that destroy everything. It can bring rain that nourishes the crops, or it can bring drought that destroys everything. That's the nature of the air. And so that's the nature of Zeus. The two correlate and correspond. Zeus takes what he wants and leaves what he wants. He comes when he wants to and leaves when he is ready. He is king of the gods because everything else is reliant on him. If the storms do not come, if the rain does not fall, if the air is too hot or too cold, nothing else matters. Thus he is king of the gods, because this is an agrarian society in a Mediterranean climate that relies on everything being just so, so the crops will flourish. And if they are not, everyone suffers. And you can see all of that written directly into the character of Zeus. And once you think about it in that light, it makes a lot more sense. You see, these aren't people trying to explain the world around them 
and mollify the gods so that they can have magical control over it. That's not the purpose of mythology. That's the purpose of magic. The purpose of mythology is simply to align yourself with the world. You have to understand that the Skyfather is a capricious monster who will either be helpful, hurtful, and you'll never understand why he's either. That's the story they needed to tell, and that's the Zeus that we get. We get his jealous wife, Hera, and we get all of the adventures of his children, because it helps us to understand our place in the world. It reminds us that we are small and do not have the ability to control every aspect of our lives. So when you're constructing your mythology, you need to be thinking about the world that the characters live in. What are their main concerns? What drives them most? You can see this in American popular religion very easily. Look at how Christianity has changed in the United States, where everything in our capitalist society is about money, and where it's extremely difficult to have access to healthcare. And so many of the most popular ministries in our country are get-rich-quick schemes or people who claim that they can heal you with a touch so you don't need to be able to afford your doctor's bills. Because those are the actual needs of the people. And if you're developing a charlatan who's using religion, that's what you need to be looking at, is what do the people need? What is the particular brand of snake oil that they want? But remember, the religions themselves were never intended, and nor were the mythologies that they sprang from, to be snake oil. They were created to make you feel connected to the world, to help you understand how the world works. Not why it works. Not the science of it. But to prepare you for living amongst the myriad dangers that surround you every single day. So what dangers are your people facing? What concerns do they have? Because that, practically speaking, is going to be what their myths are all about. On a basic level, that's easy to understand, right? If your people are on a desert planet, unless that planet was once habitable and through some great calamity lost its vegetation, they're probably not going to have a deity of trees or vines. They might of plant life, because even in a desert, some kind of plants can grow. But will they be friend or foe? Will they care more about the serpents? And will their gods be more dedicated to the rivers, if rivers indeed do exist? If you look at Egypt, most gods are related in some way to the Nile flooding, or the Nile running, or the rain that feeds the Nile, or the mysterious origins of the Nile, or the gods of the storms that drive sand over the land to take back the fertile soil. Those are their gods. Those are the deities that control them. The other deities are gods of sun, moon, stars. Why are they so important? Because if you don't know when planting time is, 
and you plant too early, the inundation is going to blow, is going to destroy your crop. If you plant too late, then they won't have time to grow. Some things need to be planted before the inundation flows in, and some need to be planted after. You need to know all these things, so you need to know the times and the seasons. So the sun, the moon, the stars all become very important markers of time. They become personified, and we tell ourselves stories about them, so we can remember when the time for planting is, when the time for harvest is, when we do what we do. I'm going to be beating that like a drum, because that is the primary function of mythology, is to connect us to the world that we live in, and sometimes the world that we want, but more the world that we live in. We're going to have deities that are explaining to us exactly how capricious the world is. Are there volcanoes everywhere? There will probably be volcano gods, and fire gods, and maybe rock gods, steam gods, geode gods, all kinds of gods related to the volcano. So if you have that archery god that you really want to put into your story, maybe because you're a fan of archery, well, ask yourself very quickly and very sternly, why would they have a god of archery? Well, maybe hunting is very important to them. Maybe there are birds or large sky creatures that attack them and they need to be able to defend them off. And what is it that necessitates the importance of the bow and arrow so that they would have a god of archery? And I'm just pulling that out as an example because as somebody who grew up playing D&D, you would look at some of the gods that they would create and you'd kind of ask yourself, why would they have a god for that? Like... Oh, look, they have a god of strife. Why would anyone have a god of strife? Oh, well, the Romans did. The Romans actually had several, and they were the children of night, or they were the children of dream. And they were there to sow discord, because it's in those liminal areas, those places where you are at the borderlands, that gods spring up. So what scares them? What gives them hope? What gives them wonder? Ask yourselves those questions and you are going to start naming your gods. If you're doing a polytheistic religion, if you're doing a polytheistic mythology, not all mythologies are polytheistic. Some are henotheistic. Henotheism is where there is one supreme god that reigns over all of them. A good example of that would be the Greeks and Romans that we've been talking about before. Zeus is very much the king of the gods. They are henotheists. They, they, they are henotheists. They have one chief god and others underneath them. You can see this very prominently throughout the Middle East, where m many of the cultures had a primary king god and a council of gods beneath them. And that's how the gods were organized. Are they pantheistic? Do they believe that the supernatural powers that govern the world are in everything and are everything or are they just in it if god can just be found in things then they are panentheistic are they practicing an enthusiastic religion or not that's a very important question and enthusiastic religion means that they believe that god can 
or one of the gods can possess someone. They can move through them, maybe in a dance or a song or in a trance of some sort. Do they have oracles? And if so, what are their purpose? What are their function? How do they serve the society that they live in? Because as people have been divorced from their spiritual heritage, the understanding of what the purpose, function, and role of these positions are have been lost, not just to those who don't practice a faith of their own, but often to the people who do. So you have to ask yourself, what is it exactly that you're doing? What, what are these people wanting from their lives? What are they trying to get? Not all stories are about good powers. Not all stories are about bad powers. But at some point in the crafting of your mythos, you're going to ask yourself, do I have a god of mischief? Do I have a devil? Do I have a demon? Is there a Satan? Is this a dualistic world? How many sides are there? And this is where you can have a lot of fun. This is where you also have to be very careful in not to limit yourself. Remember, with very few exceptions, and I mean this, like there are some cults that if you're doing the mythology of a cult, okay, but if you're talking about of a society, they're not going to be going around going, rah, 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 we are evil, we are evil. They're not going to do that. They are going to see their gods and heroes as heroes. So be very careful when you're constructing your story, unless it's for children and you're trying to make simple moral statements for children, then yes, you could have a god of evil. But you know what? There probably wouldn't be a god of murder unless they have a very different understanding of murder. And then it would probably be a god of manslaughter or of killing, not murder. Because remember, murder, murder means bad. Murder means wrongful killing. It's, it's in the definition. There's no such thing as a good murder. All murder is wrong. It, it's part of the definition of the word. So they may have a god of killing, a god of war, something like that. They may see their god of war as a good thing. And other cultures may incorporate it as their god of murder. That's possible. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But don't make them just dedicated to evil. They're not going to be running around going, rah, rah, we are evil, we are evil. Even Lovecraft, in all of his cosmicism and other problems, didn't make his villains, if we can call anyone a villain, or a hero for that fact, <laughs> in any of his stories, but he didn't have them running around going, yay, 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 we are evil. They thought that they were going to get power, rewards, blessing, or they were just so fed up with the nature and state of the universe that they just wanted to wipe it out. And so they did their darndest to wipe it out. They weren't necessarily trying to make the world a darker, gloomier, more evil place. Now, if you're writing satire, go with it. Just have fun with it. But remember, your practitioners are going to be the heroes of their own story. 
they were not going to see themselves as the villains. So their Lucifer would probably be a lot more like the one from Paradise Lost. Not necessarily a bad guy. He may end up doing bad things, but you, you can empathize with him and why he rebelled. You know, that whole, it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven thing. Maybe that resonates with them, and that's what they decide to go with. But I see this all too often, where people decide, I'm going to write about the people that worship the bad guy. And then have them running around going, E-V-I-L, for what we do, we go to hell. Evil, evil, whoa, evil. And no. <laughs> Again, unless you're writing for children, and you're trying to keep the morals simple, or you're writing farce or some other kind of karma comedy carmody <laughs> comedy don't do that make sure that your characters have a reason for following who they're following the biggest piece of advice that i can give you when you're constructing a mythology other than just some basic, the basic storytelling stuff and some of the stuff that we've already covered, is don't make it perfect. The neater the bow you tie on your mythology, the less real it will feel. Remember, these are stories that have been passed down. These are stories that have gone through countless iterations. So the little imperfections, the little inconsistencies, the things that stand out to you most are going to make them feel most real. They're going to make them feel most natural. Yes, Zeus, or Apollo for that matter. I've talked a lot about Zeus. Apollo is the god of reason who goes off on long tirades and does terrible, crazy things from time to time. But he's the god of reason and music. Why? Because many separate strings, very different strands of mythology have all collected in the pool, in the well of Apollo. And you may want to do that with your own gods. Think about pre-existing stories of other deities from older cultures that were subsumed into this mythology so that they make for little inconsistencies, little, little bits that don't make sense. You can see this really profoundly if you ever really try to get into Norse mythology? Who was Loki? Was he Thor's son or brother? There are variants, depending on who you look at and where your sources are. And ask yourself, does it matter? Do you need to answer that? Or do you want to leave it open and vague? Is it maybe the cause of a schism in your world? That some people believe that he's the brother and some that he's the son. And it changes the way you read some of the events, some of the stories. So play around with it. Have fun with it. Don't worry about perfecting it. Don't worry about making it all fit together. Because in the end, unless you're writing a Silmarillion that is going to come out and just be these stories... They don't have to be that cohesive because they're informing the background. So don't get lost. Don't get lost. This is mythology is the great forest of peradventure that we enter 
where it is very easy to get lost and to find ourselves just writing and writing and writing without actually getting anywhere. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope that it was helpful for you. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear discussed on the show, please let me know. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short, keep it clean so I can use it on the show. I would love to hear from you. You can also hit me up on social media. I'm C.E. Dorset pretty much everywhere. Instagram is the easiest place to find me right now. And if you'd like to find me anywhere else, just go to projectshadow.com. You'll find links to all my stuff there. If you have a dollar that you would like to pass my way, down in the show notes, you'll find a link to listener support, Patreon, and my coffee account. Thank you so very, very much to everyone who does that. It means the world to me. It's the only way I'm able to pay my bills, which is getting trickier and trickier day by day. Not that my bills are going up. It's uh, other sources of revenue going down. <sighs> life, life in the modern America, right? Thank you so much to everybody who helps out. If you don't have any money right now or you don't feel like giving, that's perfectly all right. But, you know, maybe think about some way that you could share my work with other people. You know, something that you like. Because, really, getting discovered is hard. It's the hardest part of the job. So, if you know somebody you think would like anything they do, share it with them. That, that really, really does help out a lot. Until next time, just remember... Black lives matter. Black trans lives matter. We, we have to make this world a better place. We, we really, really, really do. And I hope you have the courage to ride your dreams into reality. And above all, don't forget to have the fun. <laughs>